You probably have noticed in our bulletin this morning that it says no evening worship today. And the reason for that is on the back where we have the Reformation Day Fellowship. Um, the service that will be held tonight at 7 o'clock at the Hudson Valley United Reformed Church. And this commemorates the 550th year of um, since Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And so that began, as many have said, uh, the movement that was known as the Reformation. And um, it's appropriate that we think some thoughts, even this morning, of that, that event and of Luther. We're going to be singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God in, in morning worship. And um, we're going to be looking at the Book of Romans. And Romans was certainly Luther's favorite epistle. And he considered it the great work of the Apostle Paul. The magnum opus is the Latin is the great work uh, of Paul. And his recommendation to Christians was, uh, in fact, not just recommendations, it was sort of an insistence. He took it for granted. Every Christian ought to read the book of Romans once a day. It's kind of like your vitamins. You take one a day, multiple vitamins. Well, one a day reading of the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. And he believed that every Christian ought to have it memorized word for word. You think we're tough. You think the modern churches uh, who who, uh, talk much about the the church responsibility and such that we, we put a great deal upon the shoulders of people when we just ask them to attend faithfully the services of the church well we don't, we don't ask you to memorize Romans word for word and um, nor would we but it is certainly a, a wonderful epistle it's filled with wonderful things to consider and understand but I don't think Paul when he wrote the book of Romans was sitting down thinking now I'm going to write my great work now, I don't think he was thinking. I'm mean, even writing a book of the New Testament. Uh, I think Paul knew that he had authority given from Christ to write authoritative truth. That he's writing to the churches, but as we endeavor to say, it's an occasional letter to a church that was occasioned by concerns Paul had that he outlines. He's not writing a systematic theology here, although there's much in it that we can use for the purposes of constructing a systematic theology. He's not writing a, a manual of evangelism. Although there are principles that also you can employ for the purposes of doing the work of the evangelist. But um, it's a letter that had its own concerns. Concerns that had to do with the component of the church being at first uh, the Jewish church that was founded probably by those who came from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when they heard Peter's Pentecostal sermon and come to believe. And um, it's not a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul and originally probably didn't contain a great many Gentiles. But before long, as it happened in Antioch, the gospel went to the Gentiles and Gentiles believed. And it became something of a Gentile church, became something of a Gentile church, especially after Claudius uh, commanded that all the Jews be evicted from Rome. And uh, that was somewhere before his death in 54 A.D., and uh, by the time that Paul, Paul's writing this letter, probably in 54 AD, Jews had made their comeback. They had returned. And so you have a church that now largely is a Gentile church. It has Jewish people in it. And there's likely, from the content of the letter, matters of um, need to have them get along with one another with regard to dietary restrictions and days that are spoken about in chapter 14 and 15 with regard to issues of, of pride and of arrogance and of 
uh, distancing themselves from each other when they ought to have been understanding the unity that they have in uh, the gospel. And so you have phrases like to the Jew first and also to the Greek and for there is no distinction. Paul's looking to level everyone in the church and to have everyone in the church understand we all come to God through Christ on common footing and there's no um, reason to hold uh, others in at a distance. Uh, and so um, Paul's writing with respect to these concerns. He's also writing as a missionary who hopes to see the church at Rome um, have a prominent role to play in the Western expansion of the gospel. Well, these are the things we covered in introductory studies. We began to look at the letter itself. We began to look at Paul's opening words, his greeting. And again, Paul takes the, the form of epistle writing that was current in the ancient world, and he uses it for his own uh, purposes, now, particularly to, to highlight uh, his calling as an apostle, um, his status as a servant, his commitment to the gospel. He's set apart uh, for the gospel and begins to explain the gospel in terms of its Old Testament um, revelation that was promised beforehand through the prophets and the old holy scriptures. And then it concerns God's son. And God's son is seen in his um, according to the flesh identity. That is, as you just see it in terms of human understanding, he was a uh, descendant of David according to the flesh which qualifies him for messianic status and in fact the messianic status that he does indeed possess he is the greater son of David who is the one that the prophets spoke of uh, David's son uh, had to be um, uh, was, was to be the king was to be the king who would uh, uh, raise up the fallen house of David and Jesus is this very one who's marked out by his um, earthly or human identity in accordance with the flesh but even more I mean David had lots of sons a lot of people that technically could have qualified to be the Messiah of course only Jesus is uh, and he, that's marked out by the fact that he was by the spirit of holiness raised from the dead God's marked him out. God has declared him to be the Son of God in power uh, through the resurrection uh, from the dead. Only Jesus was raised from the dead. Hence, only Jesus ascended to the throne of the majesty on high and sat down at the right hand of God. And Peter's Pentecostal sermon says, basically, that's the promise, that's the sure mercies of David. That's the fulfillment of the promise to David that God set his son at his own right hand. And it said, it's not upon an earthly throne in Jerusalem. It's upon the heavenly throne of the universe that the true son of David has now come to exercise his power and his authority as Lord over all things. And uh, it's through this Son of David, it's through this resurrected Lord, uh, we have received, he says, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name uh, among all the nations. And I don't remember just how much we said about the subject of the obedience of faith last week. Did I tell you it's something that begins the letter and ends the letter? Did we go there? You don't remember that? Okay. Well, it does. It ends the letter. Turn to chapter uh, 16. At the end of the letter, you have this expression, obedience of faith, again repeated. Um, Romans chapter 16. The doxology that concludes the letter begins, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to do what? 
to bring about the obedience of faith. And Paul's, Paul ends the letter with this obedience of faith um, made known to the nations, or according to the prophetic writings, made known to the nations, God, according to his own eternal command, is concerned to bring about the obedience of faith. Well, Paul says his ministry has that as its concern. Um, his apostleship is to the nations, and for the sake of his name among the nations to bring about, he says, the obedience of faith. So this becomes a pivotal term obedience of faith and uh, what you have in the original is you have uh, uh, two words uh, but they're in the genitive case and so there's an agreement in the case uh, of the noun um, in which one's related to the other in in some way and there's different kinds of genitives to and that determines what what the relationship is and so some people would say it's one kind of a genitive or another kind of a genitive, and uh, that changes the whole relation. Some say the obedience, which is faith. Faith is obedience. So the command of the gospel comes commanding us to believe in Jesus. And they would say that's all that Paul implies. Uh, some say it's the obedience that results from faith, that flows out from faith. Faith is the source of a life of obedience. And I rather think that it's along those lines that Paul is using this expression. That faith is not just simply an idea in the mind that never has any corresponding impact upon the way we live, upon the acts of our will and the things we do in our lives. Faith becomes not just a notion, not just an idea. I mean, you have a lot of things you say you believe in that are just notions and just ideas. You know, I believe that uh, Washington led the Continental Armies and he was the uh, first president of the United States and he has a lot of stuff named after him and a lot of places where obviously he slept. George Washington slept in all these different places, right? Well, those are notions. Those are ideas. It's never anything that you're pitting your hopes upon or your life upon or that's impacting your conduct. It doesn't change one way or another how you live just because you have those notions, those ideas, their, their beliefs, because, well, that's, just, that's history. As at least that's what history tells us. And we find out often the things that historians say maybe needs a little bit of revision because it's not quite the way the historians say. Um, but uh, the matters of faith are things that are not matters of revision. It's not matters we speculate upon. It's matters that are revealed. And those revealed matters that are, are things that are determinative of our outlook, the way we think, the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand our place in the world, and the way we are called upon to live. And when God comes and brings his word of revelation to anyone, it's never just, well, here's a couple of ideas, stick it in your back pocket and draw it out when you need it. It's never that. It's always God comes to people and tells them, I'm giving you this promise, and in the light of that, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Abraham. Abraham. I have a promise of land for you. Okay, that's an interesting idea, Lord. I'll keep that in my back pocket as I carry on my work here in Mesopotamia and just live out my life in the Chaldees. Oh, no, 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 no. Abraham, you see, this land is in this place that I'm going to call you to. And so you've got to pack up your bags and you have to leave and you have to follow my directives to leave the Chaldees and come to actually see and dwell in or walk through this land that I've called you to. And it's, uh, we read in the book of Hebrews, it's by faith Abraham left early Chaldees. It's by faith he went to this land that he was called to possess. 
So faith calls you to do something. There's always a question of obedience in the light of the things we are called upon to believe. So it's always practical and personal and it's motivational and God gives you this information for the purposes uh, not just of having ideas that you contemplate when you will, but it's that your life would be lived out in the light of those promises or the light of those truths that God speaks. I don't know if I'm going to say this tonight. I think I might have thought to say it. It might even be in the text of the eight minutes I'm being given at the Hudson United Reformed Church to speak on Sola Fide. But this does touch upon this whole question of faith alone. You know, the Reformers said we're justified by faith alone. And what they meant by that was faith uh, alone brings us into the promises of the gospel. And it doesn't have to be supplemented with our own works. If you're Roman Catholic living in the time of the Reformation and you had concern about your relationship to God and you wondered, how can I find a God who's merciful? How can I find a God who will forgive my sins? Um, you would be told, will be a member of the church and submit yourself to the sacramental system that the church advocates. And here you will learn the things of the faith and here you will practice these things. And just put yourself into the care of the church. But never think that you necessarily have it have, have your sins forgiven because you don't know. You live in suspense. You live in a sense of wonder. Am I right with God? Am I forgiven of my sins? Uh, do I have a fullness of hope of, of, of heaven and access to God in the present? You just don't know. Just hang in there, do what the church tells you to do, and at the end of the day, uh, everything might be okay. But uh, Luther found that the Book of Romans offered something of a larger hope, and that larger hope is in Christ. And hope that in Christ it brings us to be right with God. That brings us to be justified by faith. And faith alone, faith alone is the instrument that brings us into the blessings of so great a salvation. But you see, because faith is, as the Reformers taught, a uniting grace. It's that which brings us into union with Christ. It's never found alone. It always is accompanied by what? Well, faith that brings us... Love. Love to Christ. Faith works by love. Faith brings us into the orbit of the greatness of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So faith teaches us to love because we've been loved by God. And love reciprocates the love with which we have been loved. And so faith is joined to love. It's also joined to hope. It's in, the, it's in Christ we have the hope of the gospel. Christ is our hope. He's our hope of everlasting life. And so faith is joined to hope. It's joined to joy. It's joined to even a sense of assurance. Hope brings that assurance. Uh, we, and so this faith is that which brings us into the orbit of the saving blessings of God. And bringing us into the orbit of the saving blessings of God is truly transformative. And so though faith is alone, the uniting grace that brings us salvation, brings us into the union with Christ, it never is alone. It always is joined to all the other blessings that the salvation of God brings. And so um, you have in the Gospel of John, and here's what I thought I was what m- might be saying this evening. Um, you have a, a group of men who are first the disciples of John the Baptist. They hear about John. They go out into the wilderness. They join John at the Jordan. They are followers of John. And in John's Gospel, uh, we're introduced to them. The uh, first uh, disciples of Jesus were actually the first, uh, f- uh, f- at first, they were the disciples of John. 
Now we read about the, the testimony of John. He's, he's not the Baptist in John's gospel. He's John the Baptist in the other gospels. But in this gospel, he's John the witness. Um, there came a man. Uh, there was a man in verse 6 of the, uh, of the prologue whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And we see the, the witness of John in verse 19. And this is the witness of John. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then he has this conversation with, with these folks. But then the next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said of him, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I did not uh, know him. For this purpose I came baptizing with water, uh, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. This is likely referring to Jesus' baptism. The the, the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then in verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He's been bearing witness. He's been saying, this Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit of God came like a dove. This Jesus is the one who is the Lamb of God, who bears away the sin of the world. But now he's doing it once more the next day, and he's standing in the presence of two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus, who walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, that's information. Are you going to believe that, disciples? Are you going to take that to heart? Are you going to agree with that? That assessment is the witness I've given. You receive the witness? Well, evidently they did. Because the two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? They don't just say, well, this is something I'll keep in my back pocket for a rainy day, a bit of information if ever I need it, if ever I'm, I'm, I'm on jeopardy, and the question's asked, um, of whom uh, was it said, uh, behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world? Uh, and I know the answer to that. No, it's, it's not for those purposes. Um, they heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. There was faith that led to following Following is one of the things that John's Gospel says is what faith does. You know, you have all those, te- those words uh, in which uh, faith is described in John's Gospel. When the, when, when the, when the witness uh, about Jesus is given throughout John's Gospel, it's in such ways as this. Um, Jesus says, I am the bread of, lo- of life. And he says, whoever believes in me will never hunger and never thirst. Whoever receives me will never hunger, never thirst. I forgot which one it was. Be either believe or receive. But it's, it's a synonym for faith. Faith is a receiving. Faith is a believing. And faith is, and then in, in John 8 and, and verse 13, Jesus is, uh, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And then he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So there is a following. Faith involves a following. Here we see the aspect of faith leading these people to follow, to follow Jesus. They followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? This is a wonderful question. What are you after? What are you, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? They want to know where, where, where is he staying? Why? Evidently, that's where they want to stay. Uh, wherever he goes, they want to go. 
I mean, there's a picture in the book of Revelation. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They saw the Lamb of God. Now they want to follow him. And now they want to stay with him. And Jesus then says, come and you will see. And they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him. That day, for it was about the tenth hour, and then one of the two heard Jesus speak and follow Jesus. They seek out uh, Simon Peter's brother. I'm sorry, um, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he found his own brother and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ. They're acting on faith. Faith is something that leads to action. It leads to following. It leads to receiving. It leads to believing. It leads to obedience. Faith is something that does bring about obedience, that arises out of faith. Faith never is alone. It's always connected to and with these other graces, like love and hope and obedience and desire to abide, to stay where Jesus is, to have communion and, uh, with him. And so Paul says that's the whole uh, matter of his message. His message is a message designed to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the nations. And then you look over at Romans chapter 6, as Paul is expounding the, the um, way in which the gospel of God's grace in Christ has come to uh, believers. Uh, this is an aspect of what is involved. Um, Paul says that um, verse 6, he says, Do you not know if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? In other words, you're a slave of something. (laughs) You serve something. You obey something. It's either sin that you obey, it's sin that you serve, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become what? Obedient. Obedient. From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. God has come in the gospel. He's brought you to be committed to a standard of teaching. And that teaching requires we live in its light. The teaching requires that there is obedience to that standard of teaching. So that you who were once the slaves of sin have become the servants of righteousness. So that's what obedience involves. It means a faith that's applied. Faith is never to be unapplied. Faith is to be applied. Faith is that which we live in the light of. Now Paul's going to go on to speak about uh, the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And let me just move there for a second. We'll get there as we we move down the passage. But you know, think about this for a minute. Habakkuk is writing in the light of the Chaldean or Babylonian um, destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the toppling of the nation. Um, He's living in a time of violence. He's living in a time that he cries unto God for help. And what does God say? Uh, The Babylonian chariots are going to come. The Babylonian steel is going to come. And the nation and the people are going to be taken away into captivity. And uh, that's just something that uh, Habakkuk has a problem understanding, has a problem receiving. But it's in the light of that reality of the Babylonian captivity that God says to Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith. Faith is absolutely necessary if you're going to survive all this. That's basically what Habakkuk is being told. If you're going to survive this onslaught 
of the Babylonians, you need to believe. And what do you need to believe? Well, you need to believe the message that God gives to the prophets. And what's the message that God gives to the prophets? Well, first of all, you can't, you can't be saved by your own ingenuity. You're not going to get out of this mess just by coming up with your own plan. Nor can you do it by looking to the Egyptians for help or to the Assyrians for help or some other nations for help. They're not going to be able to help you. What you need to be doing is you need to be hearing the message that the prophets give. And what is the message of the prophets? Well, it's kind of difficult if you were a patriotic Israelite or Judahite. Is is the message that when the Babylonians come, you submit to them. You give, give over willingly to them and you be led into captivity. Because the future is not here. The future is not in the city. The future is not with this people. The future is in exile. And it's those exiles that are going to come back and they're going to rebuild the city. And it's with them that God's going to have the future of the nation realized. It's not going to be with the dwellers in the city. They're going to be destroyed. And if you want to live, live by faith. Faith in the word of God. Now, that's just not something you could just put in your pocket as a notion, as an idea. And say, okay, well, whenever I need it, it's there. You need it now. <laughs> you need to know what you need to be doing when the Babylonians come, when these things happen. And you need to live in its light, and you need to tell others to do so. It's kind of like what uh, happened with Noah, when God said 120 years and everything's going to be destroyed. And that's the time you've got to be building an ark, Noah. You just can't just put that idea aside and say, I'll save it for a rainy day. You've got to be preparing for the ark and the flood, because God's going to destroy all flesh. And you've got to be doing what God commands you to do. So faith is something that re- requires that we heed God's voice, that we flee the coming wrath, that we find our, say, our way to Christ. We f- have, and in Christ we find newness of life. In Christ we find hope and, 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 and love and, uh, and all the blessings of this great salvation that lead to the obedience of faith. And so Paul says this uh, ministry we've been given, receiving grace and apostleship, is to the end of bringing about the obedience of faith for his sake among all the nations. And then Paul says, and that includes you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, the Romans might have not thought that it included them, because this is not a Pauline church. Paul didn't found this church. He couldn't call himself their spiritual father. And they were his spiritual children. But yet they were Gentiles. And Paul has given this ministry to the Gentiles. And so they're part of his, I use the term remit. It's a British term. It means what an, an ambassador or what a, uh, what a uh, member of, of, uh, of, the, of the government is given as their responsibilities. What is the limit of their responsibilities? Well, Paul's responsibilities extended to all the Gentiles, and that included the church at Rome. And so he says, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Um, it's part of his remit of grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith to the nations. And then he, he greets them in the way that's common in the Roman society uh, by using the term grace to you. Uh, it's a form of that word, can also be just uh, um, comparable to our hello, but also it can mean, as it does in this thing, in, in this uh, passage, it, it, it leads to not just I salute you, but that I desire that the favor of heaven rest upon you, grace to you, 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he connects that with the typical way of greeting amongst the Hebrews, which would be shalom, the term for peace and ever so much more, well-being, fullness and flourishing. Um, I was asked a question down at the funeral yesterday, how are things going in Pinebush? Are you getting by? And I said, ever so much more than just getting by. And the person I was speaking to says, well, then you're flourishing. I said, okay, that's right, flourishing. Shalom, that's what it means. Shalom, I'm, I'm, I'm doing abundantly well because I'm, in, I'm standing in the light of divine favor. And hence, I have peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that enables you to minister the word even when your back is killed. <laughs> because you stand in the favor of God and you have the peace of God. Uh, and that's what Paul desires for the Roman uh, Christians, that they would know this blessing of God's grace and his well-being, his flourishing. And it comes, he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the Father, but for the Son as well. This is our God. Our God is a God who is Father and Son. And the, and again, the, the, the typical blessings would be um, grace to you from Zeus, or one of the gods of the uh, Greek pantheon, or Roman pantheon. But uh, to the Christian, our God is the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in conjunction. Their works are works of um, uni- un- of, of unity unity of, of purpose and unity uh, of source so there is one God and that one God is both Father and Son and he, then he begins the, something of the body of the letter where he, he says I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world it's a very nice way to greet, begin a letter it, it's, it's with a note of, of, of praise of commendation uh, not flattery, because this was true. Rome was the principal city of the empire. It was the imperial city. The fact that a church was founded there would be to everyone in under the Roman authority something of great note. The gospels come to Rome. There's a church in the city of Rome. Um, it's not the first uh, mention of the Roman Catholic Church, as if Rome had some special place amongst all the cities of the Roman Empire, other than the fact it was the imperial city. It was the imperial city. But it doesn't make this church a bigger church, a better church, a more faithful church, a more glorious church. Um, because I've heard this verse used by my Roman Catholic friends to say, well, Paul commends the Roman Church as if it has some place of preeminence. No, words of praise are given to all the churches, or many of the churches, uh, for instance, the Thessalonians. You look at the first Thessalonians. Now, something similar is found here. And we're not going to start the, uh, the Thessalonican Catholic Church, although I'm sure there's Orthodox people that would take Thessalonica as maybe an important city, or as they do many cities. Um, anyway, um, but here in the first Thessalonican letter, um, Paul says in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Uh, What is the difference between your faith is proclaimed in all the world and your faith has gone forth everywhere? It's it's a similar statement. Paul's not saying this evidences one church being superior to another. No, no. He's just saying... The gospel spreading, and that brings joy to all the churches. 
I don't think we really understand the way in which the early church had networks. I mean, without having the web, it still had a network of information that flowed from church to church to church to church. I mean, you think of Paul uh, writing uh, from Ephesus saying, uh, I've heard about you from the household of Chloe, that there are divisions among you. How did Chloe get to Ephesus? Well, evidently there was some business that took her there, or people from her house. Uh, her relatives or her servants or who knows what the house of Chloe consisted in, but people from the house of Chloe, Chloe's people, told Paul about stuff that was going on in Corinth. There were ways in which information was spread, sometimes because in the ancient world you had commerce going on, you had people who had businesses that went from city to city to city to city and information was spread. You also had gospel messengers that went from place to place to place to place and, and they told Paul of things and so information spread. And letters were written, and uh, there was a sense of the of the oneness of the church. And so Paul could speak in the Corinthian letter, especially about what he ordains in every church applies here, because uh, there is this uni- unity that's to be seen in in in, in church life and in information um, about one church is known by other churches. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, certainly that means the known world, or the inhabited world, or at least the world in which the gospel had at that point spread to. So wherever there were churches that were Pauline churches, uh, people knew. There was a congregation at Rome that was uh, called of God, a congregation at Rome in which the obedience of faith was being manifest, and and, and people were glad, and they were thankful uh, to God. Um, so there's just that word of commendation and again Paul's going to uh, speak to them in ways uh, that he wants a, an open door of entry to their hearts he wants when he comes and he's going to tell them of his reasons for not coming uh, in ways in which um, when he comes he will be received and then you go to the book of Acts in Acts 28 which yeah it's in Acts 28 no I'm sorry I think it's 27 when you actually have Paul come into Rome Let's, let's turn there just, just briefly. Now, 27 is the shipwreck. No, it is 28. You have Paul arriving at Rome in verse 11. Um, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, the ship of Alexandria with um, the twin gods as a figurehead and putting in in Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit. We arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up. Uh, second day, we came to Petilio, and Petilioi, and we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days, and, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So it was a delegation that was actually sent out as Paul made his approach to Rome. Uh, to welcome him. So evidently this letter had its designed effect of giving Paul an open entry into the Roman church. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. He was wondering, what kind of reception am I going to get in the imperial city? I've never been there. This is not a church I founded. Um, will they treat me as a stranger? Or will they receive me? Well, a group of people coming out to greet him uh, was very encouraging. And he thanked God. His prayers had been answered. And we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And you have just the beginning of Paul's stay at Rome, um, there in the book of the, at the final chapter of the book of Acts. 
Well, um, again, Paul is uncertain. What kind of reception is he going to get? Well, um, he wants the people at Rome to know that his reluctance to actually have visited previously or his failure to write a letter previously was not a question of his indifference. It was not a question that he didn't care about them. It was a question, really, hey, Paul didn't have a whole lot of free time. Paul was a busy, working apostle. And um, so he wants them to know that, and he says that God is my witness. He's calling upon God to bear witness. It's almost like an oath form. And, you know, when Jesus forbids oaths, uh, he's he's forbidding the the loose use of oaths, the kind of oaths in which people just take oaths um, uh, promiscuously, if I could use that word, just freely. Uh, I, pr- I swear on this, I swear on that, I swear on my, my, my mother's grave, the life of my, 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 my chipmunk, whatever they, whatever, they figure out all kinds of things to be impressive. I really mean it. When actually they're lying in their hearts, but they use that kind of terms in order to be convincing, in order to be compelling others to believe them. Well, um, Paul's just calling upon God as his witness and solemnizing his own words. He says, I serve God with, with my spirit in the, in the gospel of his son. I want you to know that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Now, we often say, I'll pray for you, and then we don't. Have you ever done that? Told somebody you're going to pray for them, and then you just didn't pray for them? You didn't think to write it down? Imagine being able to say, honestly, in the presence of God, God is my witness Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Not as a future promise that will break, but as a reality that we fulfilled. And so Paul is, is making them known, making known to the Romans just how much he regards them, how much he cares for them. Upon his heart was this church that wasn't of his founding, and yet it was part of his acknowledged responsibility these are Gentiles, and I have a ministry to the Gentiles, and I have responsibility, even though I've never been at Rome, to pray for these people. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Never, never forget to pray for the Romans. And then he says, asking. This is a special request. And he prays for the Romans in general, but in the prayers, he prays always, without ceasing, uh, for them, there is a special request that he makes, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So it's almost as if Paul's saying, This is what I've long waited for, this is what I've long wanted. But up to this point, I have not been able to succeed somehow by God's will to do it. And then he spells it out. He says, for I long to see you. I long to see you. (laughs) And I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, it's argued as to whether some spiritual gift might mean a conferral of some charismatic gift, you know, that or the gifts of the apostles that the apostles themselves exercised and apparently were able to give unto others, or it's just... Paul's speaking about just some ministry that is part of his giftedness that would lead to the edification, the building up, and the strengthening of the Roman church. And I rather think it's that. 
he's not so much thinking about the conferral of the charismata, of the special gifts that were given to the first century church, those rather miraculous gifts that we were mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, although it does seem that the list of gifts in Romans, apart from prophecy, doesn't have that nature in the Roman gift, in the Roman list. But I don't think Paul's that concerned that they have necessarily charismatic gifts, because the whole end of it is edification. The whole end of it is to strengthen them. And it then explains what he means in verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul's saying this is not just a one-way street. I'm not just going to come among you and give you some unique gift that only apostles can give. I want to give you something of a giftedness uh, or a ministry that you can benefit from, profit from, be strengthened in, and in turn minister back to me. Minister back to me from the fullness of the gifts that God has blessed you with. Because... We're all Christians who have the Holy Spirit, and hence we have gifts to use and utilize for the good of others. And even a notable apostle, even an apostle who's a veteran church planter, missionary, who in so many ways would just seem to be so vastly more gifted than any of the Roman Christians, says, I have something to benefit from you. I need you. It's not just that you need me. I need you. And that needs to be the working understanding of the ministers of the gospel. They're just not set apart to just give to others a one-way ministry without being open to the receiving of gifts from others, benefit from others, exhortation from others, even correction from others. (laughs) They have to be willing to receive that and open, not just open to it, desirous of it. Paul longs for this. He longs for this mutuality of fellowship, this mutuality of relationship. And then he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. It's It's not that I didn't want to come to you. I've, I've had it on the list of things to get done, of things to achieve, of things to accomplish. But you go on to say in chapter 15, I've been a busy missionary apostle, bringing the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and I've made that circuit. I've not been idle. I've not been sitting around twiddle, twiddling my thumbs, wondering what in the world can I do next, maybe Rome. I've been busy. I've been busy. <laughs> but now I hope Somehow, by the will of God, this not, might, not be, might be the time. I, I've done this circuit, now I want to then come to you uh, to go by you onto Spain. You're part of my plan. You're part of the program he has set before him. Now, at this point, as Paul writes this letter, he doesn't know that his yearning, his desire, his intention to come to Rome was to be as a was going to be fulfilled as a prisoner. All of his prayers, Lord, <laughs> open up the door so I can get to Rome. I long to be with them. I long to have this mutual ministry with them. He didn't have a clue at that point. It's going to be as a prisoner. That's how he came to Rome. He came to Rome on a prison ship. He came to Rome in chains. He came to Rome uh, to be in custody to make his appeal to Caesar. But that's how God brought him to Rome. 
And it's amazing, even as a prisoner, how he abounded in fruit, fruit for the gospel, even as a prisoner uh, in Rome, and was a blessing to the people that came to him. That's what they did. They came to his rented quarters, and there Paul taught them. There Paul was encouraged by them. There they had mutual ministry together. There they uh, had prayer until Paul ultimately is released, and doubtless, though we don't know the details, had fellowship with these Roman Christians. But he says this intention, this desire to come to them, was in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Again, you're part of the of the responsibility that Christ has given to me. So it includes you, as well as the rest of the Gentiles, because I'm under obligation. There's an obligation, both to Greeks and to Bavarians, both to wise and to the foolish, all classes, all kinds, all ethnicities, learned and unlearned, foolish and wise. That part of my, my remit, part of my responsibility, part of the work that Christ has given me to do. And hence I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Lengthy introduction, but it's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. And it's one that would have opened the hearts of the Roman Christians to him and would have secured their, his, their understanding um, that they not only should receive Paul for stuff they can get, but, but Paul had a sense of his need for them. He, he, they needed to receive his, his ministry, and um, we need to give him what we can to help him in the work that God's called him to do. Not to be an obstruction to that work, not to be a hardship to that work or a discouragement to that work, but to be a helper in that work. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Now he moves from his longing to be there, to minister, to be ministered to, uh, to the gospel itself. This gospel that he's already said is um, promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It concerns God's Son. It uh, holds forth the obedience of faith to the nations. But now Paul's going to begin to talk more about the gospel. Um, I'm eager to preach the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16. For it is, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's lots that's bound up in this passage. We have only five minutes to do it. But I think the point I'd like to emphasize here is that um, Paul sees the gospel as divine dunamis. We get the word dynamite from that Greek word. It's divine power. It's the power of God for salvation. And again, I don't think anything else is called the power of God for salvation. Um, But the gospel is. The gospel is divine power. And again, I've often said, and I think I'll assert it again, that sometimes we think that other things can supplement the gospel, as if the gospel needed supplementation at all. But it really doesn't. We never really get past the gospel. We never say, well, we got the gospel, we understand it, we now move on from it. 
We don't move on from the gospel. You don't move on from that which is the power of God for salvation. And say something else is going to be more significant. What could ever be more significant than what is the power of God for salvation? The doctrine of sin is not God's power for salvation. I made mention of the fact that one of the things I really benefited from from going down to Montville was a comment that Warren Peel made about uh, Sinclair Ferguson saying that uh, he feared that there were people in the church who, if you put him in a room, um, just said, sit, sit in that chair, no, no books, uh, no, no, no reference books, not even a Bible, just uh, your own thoughts. Think for five minutes about Jesus. He said he didn't think there were many Christians that could really do that exercise and after two, three minutes just, just peter out. They wouldn't make it to five minutes with just thoughts about Jesus. They would, they, it would be exhausted within a couple of minutes. But, but you know, he, Warren Peel didn't say this, but I thought this. Put the average Christian, especially in some of our Reformed Baptist churches, into a room and say, think for five minutes about your sin. Man, five minutes wouldn't be enough. Five minutes wouldn't be enough. They'd be thinking about sin in all of its dimensions. They'd be thinking about the sins of their youth. They'd be thinking about presumptuous sins. They'd be thinking about indwelling sins, besetting sins, mortal sins, venal sins, if you're Catholic. All kinds of sins. We got full definition of all different types of sin. And they'd be thinking of it, their sins and uh, hanging their head with... And You think that's, it's a spiritual exercise that's beneficial? Not really. I mean, if it's if it's a preface to get into the gospel, maybe. But in and of itself, it doesn't do you any benefit. It doesn't do you any good. But, you know, you think about it. You come to the scriptures, and how many actual passages can you point to that really are demonstrating all the varying distinctions about, about sin? You got you know, maybe, maybe a dozen, maybe. How many passages are there about Jesus and his achievement, his accomplishments, his saving work, his power, his love, his goodness, his wisdom, his... <laughs> I mean, come on, come on. There's no comparison. The Bible's filled with Jesus. The Gospel's filled with, with Jesus. The book of Romans is filled with, with Jesus. Even in Romans 7, which is the great exposition of the law, the great exposition of the, the sense of I will to do good, evil's present with me... There's nothing in me that's good. Nothing in my flesh that doesn't dwell one good thing. And you get humbled in the light of the reality of your sinfulness. But it's, how does it all end? Thanks be to God. Through, you know, through Jesus Christ. There's where deliverance is found. It's, it's not in our sins. Years ago, I, I had a, you know, I don't know if I've listened to messages where people come to minister in my absence. But there was one year, it was a long time ago, someone came and preached. I think we're still up in the building in the town. And I did listen to the message that was recorded. And the man visiting us said that, uh, that the theme of the Bible is, in essence, sin. <laughs> sin is the great theme. And, of course, he's looking to redress a problem in the church that underemphasizes sin. But he, I think, went too far. Because really, it can't be sustained that the theme of the Bible, or the central theme of the Bible, is sin. The central theme of the Bible is deliverance from sin, salvation from sin. It's not sin. 
is Christ. <laughs> you know, Jesus showed them in all the scriptures, not the things concerning their sins. He showed them in all the scriptures, going from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning himself. You search the scriptures for them, you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. You've known the sacred writings that are able to do what? Convict you of your sins? No, make you wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to convince me the thing with the Bible is sin. No, it's the salvation from sin that Christ has come to, to, to achieve. Tim, did you have something? Blessings, you know, and we know that we're a blessed people. But sometimes, you know, I try to think beyond that to what those blessings are in Christ, and take the couple minutes to think of the multitude of blessings that we have in the gospel of Christ, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that just enhances that word blessings to us. Yeah, yeah. Again, if you think about Jesus for five minutes, you're going to think of all the blessings that flow from Him. But here is the point: Where's the power of God to be found? Where's the power of God to free us from servitude to sin, to bring about obedience to faith? It's in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. To all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And here I have to end because our time is gone. God willing, next week we'll take up, oh no, actually next week will be the first week of the new month, and maybe we'll do an open forum, but maybe we'll do Romans. We'll, We'll see. We, uh, it's a good note, to, good note to conclude on. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the centrality of, of Jesus to the gospel message that uh, your, your gospel in Christ, this gospel that concerns your Son, is indeed the power of God for salvation and all who believe. So give us to be a people well-versed in the gospel, conversant with the reality of the saving achievement of Jesus, to see him in all of his fullness and all of his beauty and all of his, of his power uh, to, 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 to be uh, to us the perfectly suited Savior to all of our needs. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into a time of fellowship, as we enter into the morning hour. For we'd ask these things in that name that's above every name, even the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.